Go ahead and be seated and let's pray together. As we pray, let's cast our cares on the Lord. I'm sure we all have cares, struggles, sorrows. Let's bring those to the Lord now. Father, we thank you for our union with Jesus. We thank you that we can stand in the power of Christ alone. We thank you that we're united to Christ in every way, that all of Jesus' blessings, all of his favors that he has won by his life and death and resurrection are ours, that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Thank you that we've been chosen, that we've been adopted, that we've been redeemed and forgiven. Thank you that we've been given a hope and a future. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to rest in that union with Christ, to find our greatest joy and to find our hope and to find our peace in the fact that we have been united to Jesus. And united to Jesus, we cast our cares on you today. All of our pains and sorrows we cast upon you because we know that you care for us. Because we know that you care for us and the proof of your care for us is in, is in what Jesus accomplished for us. So Lord, help us to trust you to really trust you, to not just say we trust you, but to trust you with our lives, to trust you with our future, to trust you with our eternity. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us today from your word, that you would, that you would show us who we are, and that you would show us what you've called us to be and do. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be doers of your word today and not merely hearers. And I pray that you would Lead us on a path of obeying you and doing what is right and good and that we would walk humbly with our God today. Lord, we thank you for this day's work of grace that you're performing in us. We pray that you would continue that work. That you would help us to see your word, help us to see what you've called us to and help us to respond with faith and obedience. We ask you for that help in Jesus' great name. Amen and amen. Let's turn again to the little book of James. We're going to be studying just two verses from the end of chapter one this morning. You're probably, you're probably tired of James one by now. But we're going to have one more message in James one, and then, and then we'll sort of push the gas pedal a little bit, and we'll be a couple messages in chapter two, a couple messages in chapter three, and we'll be, we'll be almost through with this book here in just a few months. But today, James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. James 1, verse 26, James says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the Word of God. May God burn its truth on our hearts. The word religion is not a very positive word today. 
No one wants to be called religious, right? Calling someone religious today is like calling them a hypocrite or at the very least calling them naive or simple. Even many churches today use the word religion in a negative sense. You've heard churches or Christians say things like, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Now, I certainly understand the spirit in which people say things like that. However, in our text today, James urges us to be religious. James uses the word religion in a positive sense. In fact, James says there is a religion that is pure and acceptable to God. There's a religion that we want. There's a religion that we should pursue, James says. And so what does James mean by religion? Well, we know from the context of this entire book that by true religion, James means true faith, true Christianity. Yes, Christianity is mainly about a relationship with the God of the universe through the person and work of Jesus Christ. However, it is a relationship that manifests itself in external ways. And that's what James means by religion. This is perhaps the main point of the book of James. True faith demonstrates itself in a life of obedience. Now, a few weeks ago, we noted that James chapter 1, verse 18, seems to be the key to understanding this first chapter. James told us in verse 18 that of His own will, God brought us forth, caused us to be born again by the word of truth. James teaches that salvation is by grace alone, through faith in Jesus alone. We contribute nothing to our salvation but the sin that made it necessary. But those who are saved by grace alone will evidence their faith by their life of obedience to God's Word. And so James urges us to be doers of the Word and not merely hearers who deceive ourselves. All of our exposure to God's Word is to be accompanied by obedience to God's Word. And in verses 26 and 27, here at the end of chapter 1, is James's application to that truth, to be doers of the Word. And these two verses, James gives us three tests of true religion. He gives us one negative test in verse 26 and two positive tests in verse 27. You see, James says we can confess orthodox theology, we can attend healthy and solid churches, but the proof of our relationship with God comes from our behavior. And so in verses 26 and 27, James gives us a few characteristics of the new life we've been called to in Jesus. Now, please note, disclaimer here, James is not giving a comprehensive definition of Christianity here. That's not his goal. Rather, his goal is to simply illustrate some of what acceptable Christianity looks like. He's providing some characteristics, but not all characteristics. James is providing a sufficient test for us to determine whether our faith is robust enough to be considered true. So there's a danger in just focusing on these two verses this morning. 
The danger is to isolate these verses from the rest of the New Testament and walk away thinking Christianity is just all about being moral and charitable. If we could just be moral and charitable, that's what true Christianity is. No, that's not what James is saying here. He's describing some of what the new life in Christ is supposed to look like, what it's to be characterized by. James is calling us here to bear the family likeness. We have been born into God's family, verse 18, and now we should increasingly look like our Father in our attitudes and in our actions. If we have been born of God, then we should reflect the character of God. And so there is a religion that is worthless. There's a religion that is meaningless and of no value, James says. And there is a religion that is pure. There's a religion that is undefiled in the sight of God, our Father. James gives us three tests to begin to determine which kind of religion we have, whether it is worthless or whether it is pure. And church, can I just say, this is not an easy test. This is not an easy test. I must say that this is quite an uncomfortable test for us. In fact, meditating on these verses over these past couple weeks in preparation for this sermon has been like having a CAT scan on my soul. This passage aims to that we weren't even aware are in our hearts. These verses exist to reveal something of the depth of our sinfulness and our selfishness. So be prepared for the surgeon's knife this morning. Jump up on the operating table and let the surgeon do his work. And at the same time, as we feel this conviction of sin and as we turn away from our sin and our selfishness, be prepared for the healing power of the gospel of Jesus because these verses reveal, yes, how much we lack, but also how wonderful our Savior is. And so let's observe these three tests of true religion, verses 26 and 27. Or another way to sort of look at these verses would be to say, here are three particular ways, by God's grace, that we as Christians are to be doers of God's Word. Here are three particular ways that we're to be doers of God's Word. Let me give you all three of them and then we'll look at them each in turn. First, a Christian seeks to control the tongue. A Christian seeks to control the tongue. Secondly, a Christian seeks to care for the weak and the helpless. And third, a Christian seeks to combat worldliness. So three C's. Control the tongue, care for the weak, combat worldliness. Here are the three tests, and let's take them each one at a time. The first one is this. A Christian, by God's grace, seeks to control the tongue. James says a Christian seeks to control the tongue. Look at verse 26. James says, if anyone thinks he is religious, but does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. James says we deceive ourselves and we waste our lives 
if we allow our tongue to run wild. Notice the word picture James is using. We are to bridle our tongue. A bridle is used on wild horses to tame them. A bridle limits the movement of something so that it doesn't fly out of control. And so James compares our tongue to a powerful horse that is ready to take a wild ride if the reins are not kept tight. Now James is going to address the issue of the tongue in much greater detail when we get to chapter 3. Actually, I think this here in chapter 1 is just a little appetizer to prepare us for that full meal where James is going to say a lot more about the destructive nature of our tongues. In fact, in James chapter 3, James says that our tongues are set on fire by hell. He says that our tongues are full of deadly poison. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on this subject this morning because in just a few weeks, we're going to address this more fully. You may want to find out which Sunday that's going to be and just plan a vacation or, or something so that, so that you don't have to be here because that's going to be painful. But let me do say this based on verse 26. What we say with our tongues directly corresponds to the reality that's in our hearts. This is why James says this is a, a test of true religion, because it's, it's ultimately not just about what you say, it's about who you are. This is what Jesus said. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, our tongues will inevitably reveal what's inside of us. What's inside of us, the state of our heart, is what's going to come out through our mouths. The true test of our religion is not to add up what we say in Bible study or community group and say, see, here's my religion, God. No, the true test of our religion is how we talk about others when they're not around. The true test of our religion is what we say when someone cuts us off on the highway or someone fouls us on the basketball court. The true test of our Christianity is what we say when a coworker or our friend falsely accuses us someone else. By the way, controlling our tongues applies just as much to what we type and text and post on social media as to what we say out loud with our physical tongues. Controlling our tongue is the issue of obeying the command of Ephesians 4.29. Listen to Ephesians 4.29. You may want to jot that reference down because if, if this is something you particularly struggle with, what you, what you say, here's the definitive command in the Bible about how we use our tongue. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So the Bible says, no corrupting talk is acceptable. None. No corrupting talk. No slander. No gossip. No backbiting. No profanity. No rudeness. No malice. No lies. Only speak what builds others up and gives grace to those who hear. That's very clear. Now, 
I think we have to resist two temptations as we think about this test. Do we bridle our tongue? Do we control our tongue? The first temptation I think we have to resist right now is to begin thinking about things others say that they shouldn't say. Apply this test to your own life. Apply this test to your own life. Where have you not controlled your tongue? Where has corrupting talk come out of your mouth? But the second temptation I think we have to resist is to try to fix this. This is who we are. We're fixers. We just want to fix stuff really quickly. Please hear this. You cannot bridle your tongue on your own just like you can't fix your heart on your own, right? You say what you say because that's what's in your heart. You say what you say because that's what's in your heart. And therefore, we need Jesus. We need Jesus. We need a Savior who never wants sin with his tongue. Jesus was falsely accused. He was beaten unjustly, and yet he didn't even open his mouth. There was no deceit found in his mouth. You can't fix it on your own. Only God can fix it. Only Jesus can heal your heart and thus heal your tongue. We who have been born again are to bear the family resemblance by controlling our tongues. We who have been born again are to practice, are to do, are to obey with how we speak, with the words that we use. Here's how we are doers of the word and not hearers only. By letting no corrupting talk come out of our mouth, but only what is helpful for building up. Only what gives grace to those who hear. That's the first test. Here's here's the second test. A Christian, by God's grace, seeks to care for the weak and helpless. A Christian seeks to care for the weak and the helpless. So verse 27 says that pure and undefiled religion in God's sight is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. So an orphan is a child who has no parents to take care of them. A widow is a wife who has no husband to take care of her. And so James is mentioning these two groups in particularly in order to give the most extreme examples possible. You see, in James's day, the worst possible suffering existed for those who had no one to provide for them for those who had no one to protect them. There were no welfare, welfare programs. There were no social security benefits. There were no life insurance policies in James's day. Orphans and widows were without identity and without provision and without protection. And so by mentioning these two groups, James is not saying we're to only take care of orphans and widows and no one else. No, He's saying that true Christians take care of the most weak and helpless people in their society, the people no one else wants to help. That's who Christians are supposed to help. Again, 
James is calling us to bear the character of our Father who gave us birth of His own will. Did you see this in verse 27? Notice it again. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, and he could have just said is this. Religion that's pure and undefiled before God is this. But notice he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this. You see who James is reminding us of the character of our God. He is fatherly. He is He is fatherly toward his children. He is the father. And the Bible is filled with references of God's fatherly care for the weak and for the helpless. In fact, Psalm 65 says this. It says that God is the father of the fatherless and the defender of widows. God is often described in Scripture as the advocate of the weak. Listen, if you deny justice to the helpless you will have their maker to answer to. Now notice the word visit in James 1.27. What does it mean to visit orphans and widows? Well, this word literally means visit in order to do good. Visit with the purpose of blessing is how this word is, is used. This is more than just smile at them. This is more than just stop by to say hi every now and then. To visit the needy and helpless is to care for them. That's what James is calling us to do, to actually meet their needs. In fact, this same word is used by Jesus in Matthew chapter 25 in the parable of the sheep and the goats. Remember this parable? Jesus taught that it is those who cared for the weak and the helpless who will enter the kingdom of heaven. Here's how Jesus said it. He said, come, you who are blessed by my Father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. Same word. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the people asked Jesus, when do we do all these things for you? And Jesus answered, Truly I say to you, as you did to the least of one of these, my brothers, you did to me. Jesus says, as you did to the the least of these, to the orphans and the widows, to those who are weak and helpless, you did that to me, Jesus said. To visit someone in their affliction is to do whatever it takes to meet their needs, to shore up what is lacking in them to visit the weak and helpless is to care for them as you would care for yourself if you were in that situation there's another time in the new testament where this word visits visit is used it's a very interesting one to me i just found all kinds of delight in this story this week as i as i looked up this word visit and found it here in luke chapter 7 in luke chapter 7 jesus encounters a widow who has just lost her only son. Now listen, when you read this story, Luke goes to great lengths to tell us that she's a widow, she's lost her husband, she has no one to care for, to protect her, to provide for her, but now, not only has she lost her husband, but Luke tells us very specifically that her only son 
has just died. This is her only son. This is her only source of identity. This is her only source of income. And verse 13, Luke chapter 7 says, Jesus had compassion on her. And how does Jesus have compassion on this widow who's just lost her only son? Jesus physically and literally raises her only son from the dead in front of this great crowd. Luke tells us that after Jesus raised her son from the dead in front of this great crowd of people, that this man got up from the dead and Jesus, quote, gave her, gave him to his mother. Why does Luke tell us that? Like, obviously, he just raised from the dead. He's going to be with his mother. But Jesus specifically raised him from the dead and gave him to his mother. You see, Jesus healed this man. Jesus raised this man from the dead, not out of compassion for this man, but out of compassion for this widow, for his mother. And Luke tells us, here's, here's what Luke tells us. Fear seized the crowd, and they glorified God. And here's what they said. Here's what the crowd said when they saw Jesus have compassion on this widow by raising her only son from the dead. They say, God has visited, same word, his people. God has visited his people. In that context, what does the word visit mean? The crowd saw Jesus care for this widow, and they concluded, God just came to visit us. You see what they're saying? They're saying, this is what our God does. This is who our God is. He's the father of the fatherless, and he is the defender of widows. When Jesus shows up, people know he's God because he acts like God. He defends widows, and he is the father of of the fatherless. See, friends, when we visit the weak and helpless, we become the means by which God visits His people. The reason we display, display our faith by caring for the needy is because God intends to use us to visit His people. We are to rescue the weak. We are to be the champions of the helpless. We are to be delivering people from their afflictions. God has created us in His own image. God is a rescuer of the weak, and He has made us to reflect His character by laying down our very lives for those who are defenseless. It's one of the most awful effects of the fall and of our indwelling sin that people like us who are created in the image of God turn a deaf ear to the cry of the weak and helpless. Undeniable proof of human depravity exists in how much we think about ourselves and our safety and our comfort and how little we spend ourselves for the benefit of the poor, the uneducated, the hungry, the mentally ill, the abandoned. Christians, we have been born again. We have been adopted into the very family of God and thus, let us reflect the character of our God in our compassion for the weak and the helpless. 
If this is what God says is pure and undefiled religion, then friends, this is what we need to give ourselves to doing. We will waste our lives if all we do is pile up more and more stuff for ourselves and don't rescue those who cannot rescue themselves. Let me give two broad areas of application on this point. In no way am I trying to limit the application of this passage. Allow the Holy Spirit of God to convict you of wherever it is that you need to obey this passage. But let me just try to help us think about a few areas that we could possibly apply this, that we could, in our society, be doers of the Word and have this kind of religion that rescues the weak and helpless. First, let me say a word about abortion. Is there a more weak and helpless group of people on this planet than children whose parents want to kill them? I submit to you, there is no group of people on this entire planet who are more weak and more helpless than the unborn. True religion is rescuing the unborn from the slaughter of abortion. The unborn don't have a voice for themselves. And we are called to bear God's image in this way, to rescue and defend them, to rescue and defend them them. Secondly, let me say a word about adoption. Adoption. There are hundreds of millions of orphans worldwide today. In fact, right here in Bell County, this number shocked me, right here in Bell County, there are over 1,100 children in the foster care system. Friends, adoption is not just for couples who can't have children on their own. We need to bash that false idea. Adopting children is one of the most clear ways we can care for the weak and helpless. Adopting a child is something every Christian couple should consider, regardless of how many children they have or their ability to bear children on their own. Consider adopting a child, how that would communicate the gospel to the watching world. And those of you who are beyond parenting age, encourage others to adopt. Encourage your children to adopt. Be ready to financially support those who are pursuing adoption. One of my prayers for this church is that in the next 15 or 20 years, our church will be full of kids who have been rescued from fatherlessness. May God be pleased to create a culture of rescuing in our church for His glory, for His honor. And listen, I will clearly say adopting isn't for everyone, but maybe something shorter term, like fostering a child, is something you can do. I learned a lot this week. There's an organization in Belton just on Main Street called Foster Love. You've probably seen the sign if you've driven down there fantastic organization that supports foster families in dozens of ways. They're doing great work. One of the things you can do through foster love is you can sign up to be trained to be a babysitter to help foster families out. 
foster families can't just have anyone babysit the kids. There's all sort of rules and regulations. And so you can go through training and you can be put on a list and be called to babysit for an evening so that a foster family can have a break. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, the whole world became a spiritual orphanage. We were all fatherless. We were all weak. We were all helpless. And what did the father do? He sent his only son to rescue orphans. The father sent his son to deliver us from being fatherless for all eternity. And he adopted us into his own family. He gave us a seat at the table. He gave us an inheritance and a future. He adopted us into his own family. And those who have been rescued by Jesus are those who are now called to rescue others who are weak, who are helpless, who can't fend for themselves. So how are you going to obey this command to visit orphans and widows in their affliction? How are you going to obey this command? How are you going to move toward the needy and the lonely and the marginalized of our society? This is what true religion is. True Christians care for the weak and the helpless. Here's the third and the final test that James gives us. Number three, a Christian, by God's grace, seeks to combat worldliness. A Christian seeks to combat worldliness. So he says, pure and undefiled religion is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and, notice the end of verse 27, to keep oneself unstained from the world. So James says we're to be both practically helpful and personally holy. We're to be both practically helpful to society, to the world at large, but we're also to be personally holy. I'm glad James put both of these together here in verse 27 because I think we have a tendency to drift toward or to move toward one side or the other. Many of those who are advocates for the poor live lives that are morally reprehensible. Many of those who strive after holiness refuse to get their hands dirty in actually serving people and caring for people. We're to have both public compassion and private purity. We're to combat the worldliness that stains our souls. We're to resist the stain of the world on our hearts. Notice that James describes this mark in in active terms. He says we are to keep ourselves unstained, unpolluted from the world. The the picture is is that the world is trying to stain our our soul. The world is trying to stain our heart at everywhere we turn. And we are to actively keep ourselves unstained. We are to actively stiff arm the stains of the world, keeping them away from our souls lest they stain us. We're to be engaged with the world in its misery, but at the same time fighting against the seduction of the world's values in our hearts. And let's just be honest. If we evaluate ourselves, we quickly realize that we are incredibly stained with sin and worldliness. So where does this worldliness manifest itself in your life? Where have you been stained? How has the world stained Your soul. Charles Spurgeon once said, over a hundred years ago, he said this, 
He said, I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. Reason why we have so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. We are so stained by the world that we get more joy from the things of the world than we do from our relationship with King Jesus. Thomas Guthrie once gave this counsel. He said, if you find yourself loving any pleasure better than praying, any book better than the Bible, any house better than the house of God, any table better than the Lord's table, any person better than Christ, and any indulgence better than the hope of heaven. He said, take alarm. Take alarm. Be aware. Combat anything, James says. Combat anything, any website, any social media, any video game, any TV show, anything that robs your affections for Jesus. Combat anything that would stain your soul with worldliness. James says, here's pure religion. Here's, here's religion that God is pleased with. It's to keep yourself unstained from the world. And so James provides us with three tests of true Christianity. Control of the tongue. Care for the weak and helpless. Combat worldliness. So how do you do on this test? What grade would James give you on this test? Is your religion pure and undefiled? Or is your religion worthless? The reality is that all of us have failed all of these tests. All of us flunked this class. We're to bridle our tongue, but all of us have used words to tear down. In fact, in James 3, James says, no man can tame the tongue. None of us have succeeded in bridling our tongue. We're to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, but all of us have cared more about our comforts than we have about rescuing the weak. In fact, in James chapter 2, James is going to expose our partiality. All of us have played favorites. We've cared more about those who can, who can help us than for those who can offer nothing to us. We're to keep ourselves unstained from the world, but all of us have in fact befriended the world. In chapter 4, James is going to call us adulterers. He's going to say that we're dividing our attention between two different lovers, between the world and between God. And he says, don't you know friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Beloved, who of us can stand before God this morning and say, look at my religion, God. Aren't you pleased with my religion? Isn't my religion so pure? Isn't my religion so undefiled, God? We are in need of a Savior. We are in need of a Savior who always had pure and undefiled religion. We're in need of a Savior who always bridled His tongue. We're in need of a compassionate Savior to rescue us from our helplessness. We're in need of an unstained Savior who never once sinned. And we're in need of a Savior who can wash our stains by His precious blood. It is only in Jesus that you and I can ever have the hope of pure religion. It is only in Jesus 
and in the power and enablement that he offers through union with him that we could ever have pure and undefiled religion. James is not urging us to try harder here. I promise you that. Because we can't. What we need is to run to Christ. What we need is to hide ourselves in the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This passage is here to remind us of our helplessness and of Christ's sufficiency. And so turn away from yourself. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from the stains. And turn to Jesus, the only and all-sufficient Savior this morning. Let's pray together. Father, make us doers of Your Word and not hearers only. Father, thank You for sending Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die in our place for our sins. Lord Jesus, thank You for Your death for the sins of our tongue. Thank You for Your death for the sins of what we've typed and texted and posted on social media. Lord Jesus, thank You for Your death for our sins of lack of compassion and care for the weak and helpless. Thank You for Your death for our sin of selfishness. Lord Jesus, thank You for Your death for our sins of worldliness. Thank You for Your death for the stains on our soul. Thank You for Your blood that washes us white as snow. Thank You for Your death that rescues us from our hopeless and helpless situation. I pray this morning in the power of Your Gospel that You would enable Your people to obey You, to do what You say, to have true and pure religion. Oh God, we need Your help. We ask You for it. In Jesus' great name, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.